A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. In December of 2017, I made a very basic and, and frankly benign 10 day trip to Russia. My name is Mark Polymeropoulos.、Uh, I served for 26 years at the Central Intelligence Agency. I,、uh, my job at the time, I was the Deputy Operations Chief、uh, for Clandestine Operations over Europe and Eurasia. I knew something was wrong when I woke up kind of startled in the middle of the night during the first several days of the trip. I woke up with an incredible case of, of vertigo, you know, the room was spinning. With ringing in my ears, tinnitus, terrible nausea, and, and a splitting headache. It was frankly terrifying. I knew something really, you know, something had happened. My first thought was, wow, I, you know, maybe I have some food poisoning. It was, it was the only thing that came to mind. When that didn't resolve over the course of the trip, and of course, then when I got back to the United States and my symptoms got worse, I knew it was something far worse. Mark didn't have food poisoning. A similar set of symptoms were first reported by American and Canadian diplomats in Havana, Cuba, a year earlier, in 2016. There have been flare ups at American embassies across the world ever since. And in recent days, The US administration has announced four more cases. But after six years and more than 200 victims, the condition, known as Havana Syndrome, has never been fully explained. What could possibly be behind this baffling illness? Hello, and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Alok Jha. The Economist Science Correspondent. Today, what causes Havana Syndrome? We'll be examining some possible scientific explanations. Could it be the result of a highly sophisticated electromagnetic attack? The capability to rapidly pulse these types of directable microwaves is not only possible, but is highly probable. Or can it be explained by a programming error in the human brain? I think. There is a significant likelihood that a portion of the patients at least have what are referred to as functional neurologic disorders. These are a range of somewhat poorly understood but common conditions. Of four more American diplomats falling ill with Havana syndrome, this time now in Europe. The suspected attacks were reported internally last summer to officials at those posts and eventually to the State Department in Washington. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says the federal government is working to identify the illness and who or what might be behind it. So it's just been announced that four American diplomats working in Geneva and Paris
have fallen ill with Havana syndrome, this suspected neurological illness. Hannah Nabiyu-Vioke writes about current affairs for The Economist. Three of them were in the Swiss city of Geneva and one of them in Paris, in France. But at the moment, we don't know what it is or who is behind it. Can you take us back in time? When did the first reports of this syndrome begin to emerge? In late 2016, in Havana, the capital city of Cuba, several CIA officers that were working at the American embassy reported very strange symptoms. They said that they felt a massive pressure on their head and that they heard ringing high-pitched sounds similar to a swarm of cicadas. They were feeling nauseous. They felt fatigue. They had memory loss and hearing loss. And um, upon further investigation, brain scans revealed concussion-like symptoms and as if they had been in a bomb blast. So America was very concerned. They were spooked and they withdrew half of their embassy staff from the city. And this had just come after America and Cuba had formalized diplomatic relations. So there was a a real concern that Cuba could be targeting foreign diplomats. And have these symptoms been reported elsewhere too? Yes. So over five years, some 200 cases have been reported around the world, from Russia to Colombia, Austria to Uzbekistan, and now Geneva and Paris as well. So it seems to affect diplomats wherever they are, not just Havana. One of those victims was the CIA officer Mark Polymeropoulos, who, as we heard earlier, first experienced symptoms on a short trip to Russia in 2017. When I returned to the United States, uh, I wasn't feeling well, and I knew something really was wrong. This is starting in early 2018, where I first went and I saw the CIA's doctors, and I had heard, you know, about incidents in 2016, what happened to the U.S. Embassy personnel in Havana. So I was just curious if that had any kind of similarities. Initially, they dismissed it. They didn't think I fit the bill. And so I went off to my own doctors, neurologists, infectious disease specialists, allergists, ear, nose, and throat doctors. I mean, went on and on. And ultimately, by about March and April of 2019, I had, again, terrible vertigo, but I had brain fog. I lost my long-distance vision. I couldn't drive. A headache that was, you know, that never ended. In fact, I have it even to this day. It's been four years of a headache. I was only able to go to work several hours a day, and the doctors still, you know, it was still a mystery. I started having imaging done, you know, MRIs. They, They just could not figure out why I was suffering the way I was. The struggle to account for Mark's symptoms continued for years. I just had an MRI maybe a month ago um, because I'm still suffering from headaches and I had a terrible bout of vertigo recently. And it's, it's come to the point where sometimes, and this is going to sound, you know, maybe, maybe other victims of, of certain injuries will understand this, sometimes I wish they would find something. Now, that, that's kind of counterintuitive. You don't want to find something bad in your brain. But because this has been this silent injury, you know, at times I wish they would actually pinpoint what in the world has happened to me. I finally was admitted to an intensive outpatient program at Walter Reed's National Military Medical Hospital, 
which is, you know, the, the U.S. military's kind of preeminent hospital, and a specific unit there called the, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. That is their traumatic brain injury program. So I was admitted there for one month between January and February of 2021. And that, that really is what kind of changed my life because, first of all, they believed something happened to me. They diagnosed me with a traumatic brain injury, with a TBI. I have the diagnosis from them. And that, to me, was really a seminal moment because finally doctors, you know, believed me. And then, of course, they start giving you hope and, you know, giving you tools on how to deal with your condition. But finding a medical explanation for Havana syndrome has not been straightforward. As it turns out, the medical studies of the most important and distinctive symptoms, which are hearing loss and the concussion-like brain tissue damage, have actually been quite inconclusive. And when you look at the results of these studies, for example, the brain scans revealed white matter changes in three out of 21 patients, which experts say is not unusual in a sample of that size. You know, white matter changes can be caused by depression as well. So it doesn't seem as shocking as it might first appear. And the same goes for the study of the, the hearing loss. About one third of the Havana syndrome sufferers uh, noted that they had hearing loss, but a standard test that was applied to them found that hearing loss had only taken place in two of the sufferers, and both of those diplomats had experienced hearing loss before the events. So again, inconclusive and not as shocking as it might have first uh, seemed. The doctors were very clear that I suffered a mild traumatic brain injury based on what they called an external exposure event. You know, that's kind of a, a very clinical term, but what they're saying is something happened to me. One of the theories that, that they have is there's the occipital nerve, which is in the back of your head, which is where my headaches really emanate from. That's very close to the skin. And so, you know, something, an exposure of something hitting that would make some sense, but they're, they're really not sure. Well, what, what do you believe is the cause of your condition? There is a theory that was first put forward uh, in 2019. The National Academy of Sciences took a look at the victims from uh, the U.S. Embassy in, in Havana, Cuba. And the conclusion was that they were subject to a likely directed energy attack. And make no mistakes, you know, I know a lot of these victims now. I've met them and their symptoms are remarkably similar than mine. So that, to me, gives me some pretty solid clue. Doctors referred to it as the immaculate concussion. But if it was a directed energy attack, what sort of energy could be blasted through hotel rooms or embassy walls? And all without being spotted by one of the world's most sophisticated intelligence agencies. Perhaps it was some form of mechanical device, such as a sonic device. Jim Giordano is a professor of neurology and biochemistry at Georgetown University Medical Center. He's also the executive director of the Institute for Biodefense Research, a federally funded think tank in Washington, D.C. We know that these types of devices are commercially available. They're available direct to consumer. They're widely used to repel vermin of all sorts, insects, small mammals, and even large mammals. And they're also advocated for use against household intruders in order to protect space. But there are some problems with this theory. 
because there was no custodial record of the purchase or installation of these devices. There was no incident record of these devices being installed or removed. And the devices themselves would have had to be pretty close to these individuals to be able to produce this type of effect. The original victims in Havana complained of an awful piercing sound in their ears. In 2017, the Associated Press obtained an audio recording taken by a victim while they thought they were being attacked. This, it turned out, was most likely the sound of crickets rubbing their wings together. Hardly something loud enough to cause hearing damage. So at that point, it became clear that the type of damage that was incurred was certainly consistent with what we would see from being exposed to some form of sonic device, either a hypersonic device or a device within the high acoustic range. That's to say, inaudible to the human ear. could have been some form of a listening device that had a sonic artifact. It could have been some form of intelligence or surveillance device of the same sort, but of a higher level of sophistication. And or it could have been a directed energy weapon. In other words, a device used intentionally to have a disruptive effect on individuals. The nature of those stimuli could produce disruptions in the both structure and function of the inner ear and could also create what's called a cavitation effect. In other words, literally a, a rumbling, a bubbling, a turbulence in various tissues and fluids, inclusive of the fluid of the inner ear and or the blood. And that disruption of blood flow might induce a cavitation effect in the brain, very similar to what one would see with type 2 decompression sickness. Sonic weapons are an unpleasant proposition, but there's no evidence that this unpleasantness translates into concussion symptoms, let alone actual brain damage. Subsequent information then reveal the possibility and probability that there may have been a microwave component as well. Microwaves are a more likely candidate to successfully travel through walls and to hit a precise target. The capability to rapidly pulse these, utilize a, a rapid energy source, and therefore deliver these types of directable microwaves at a significant distance, maintaining the integrity of the waveform, and having an electromagnetic disruptive effect without a thermal signature, it's not only possible, but is highly probable. Someone who's had first-hand experience of directed microwave radiation is James Lynn, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Illinois in Chicago. I got involved in the early 1970s. We set up a uh, laboratory experiment whereby we can mimic the conditions of the uh, radar operations and I myself uh, served as a subject to see whether one can indeed uh, hear a, a pulse coming from the radar. Professor Lin was interested in exploring whether microwaves could interact with the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. 
Microwaves are a type of electromagnetic wave with a range of frequencies that are smaller than visible light. Microwaves fired out from a device can be directed so that they end up at a precise location rather than spreading out into the environment like sound waves from a loudspeaker. That's why police use microwave devices to check on motorist speed, for example. No one has ever suggested that one can see electromagnetic waves uh, other than light or hear electromagnetic waves as sound would. And so uh, that was a real challenge. In fact, that's my challenge as to what is happening scientifically in that case. Decades before anyone had uttered the words Havana syndrome, Professor Lin wanted to know whether a pulsing microwave beam could create a sound inside a person's head. So he put himself directly in the firing line. There was an exception in those days that was that if you are the investigator and you are willing to subject yourself to it, then all the rules do not apply. You can do what you want. And today we cannot do that. But that was in the early 70s. And he was able to hear these microwaves, something called the Frey effect or the microwave auditory effect. The microwave pulse could be heard is a microwave auditory effect. What happens is that when the brain tissue absorbs beams of pulsed microwave energy, the absorbed microwave energy gets converted by the brain tissue into an acoustic energy. And then that acoustic energy, in terms of the pressure wave, gets propagated from the brain to the inner ear. That's how I was able to hear it. At some point, the loudness would be such that the acoustic pressure wave generated uh, in the head would be so strong, there's no question that uh, you would, in addition to being able to be heard, you would start damaging uh, tissues that was affected by it. That might explain how microwaves could cause problematic neurological symptoms. If the pressure wave was high enough, you would generate headaches, you would hear a loud sound. And because the hearing apparatus in the inner ear exists side by side with a, a balancing, and if that's the case, then one would sense a vertigo or have balance issues involved with it. The way we have to think of the brain is not so much uh, like a hardwired set of, of wires and circuits, but more like a cell phone network with various nodes and networks. Jim Giordano again. Well, if you then apply an electromagnetic energy source to this network and to these nodes, you can disrupt not only the immediate functional capabilities and functional patterns, but by changing those functions, you could also incur certain structural disruptions in terms of the integrity of their nodes and networks and essentially rewire, and I'm being very colloquial, we wire the nodes and networks of the brain that are involved in a variety of different functions of, of thought, emotions, and behavior. It does still all seem a bit spy thriller. Could a pulsing microwave device really have been used as a weapon? These devices could be employed against individuals also became a possibility, then a probability. The reason for that is that the scalability and fieldability of these types of directed microwaves really became far more possible over the past five to 10 years. 
One reason for pulsing microwaves or other radio waves at someone might be to hurt them, but that isn't the only reason. That's The Economist's defence editor, Shashank Joshi. And I think there's a really interesting precedent for this. If you look back at the 1950s, in fact, all the way to the 1980s, the Soviet Union beamed microwaves at the American embassy in Moscow. It even had a name. This was called the Moscow Signal. And nobody knows for sure what it was, at least those without access to very classified information. But one theory is that it was a means of eavesdropping on the embassy. Microwaves could potentially be used to activate bugs hidden in the walls. They could be used to capture conversations reflected from windows. They could even be used to capture information from electronic devices. So, for example, things like the cipher machines that are used to send secret cables back to America. At one point, the Americans even installed screens to protect their diplomats and their spies. This was taken very seriously indeed. So with that in mind, it's possible that what we're seeing today isn't a weapon, as it's been called. It could conceivably be a means of intelligence gathering, and the people and their symptoms could essentially be collateral damage. Even if Havana syndrome did start as some sort of directed energy attack, other factors could be at play too. Here's Jim Giordano again. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a sociogenic and psychogenic effect that is associated with and has arisen from the validation of those two dozen cases in Havana. In other words, after the first cases were reported in Havana, people were on high alert. As a component of the syndrome, the public effect of the syndrome, is this sort of conjoinment of individuals who have other things wrong with them that may warrant significant clinical attention, but don't necessarily represent the same thing as those two dozen individuals in Havana and the hundred or so plus cases that have been validated and verified. The origins could have been an attack, but the spread might have more psychological explanations. It's something that we call the nocebo effect. In other words, think of the the dog has fleas phenomenon. You come to my house, I tell you, oh, my dog has fleas, and all of a sudden the guests at my party start itching. My dog didn't have fleas, there are no fleas in the house, but people begin to present psychosomatically or psychogenically as a consequence of either their concern, their worry, apprehension. This is sometimes referred to as, as the worried well. While the awful effects of Havana syndrome are undeniable, could the cause be more about mind than matter? That's coming up. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The cause of Havana syndrome remains contested among scientists, to say the least. A rival idea is that it's not caused by a mysterious weapon at all, that it's in fact a mass psychogenic illness originating in the mind. If you go back into September, the then head of the Biden administration's panel investigating Havana syndrome, Pamela Spratlin, 
said that she would not rule out the possibility of mass psychogenic illness. Many of the victims were outraged and she was forced to resign. Robert Bartholomew is a medical sociologist at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and he wrote a book on the idea that Havana syndrome could be the result of a mass psychogenic illness. There's no real mystery here. The politics has been getting mixed up with science. Mass psychogenic illness is not a mental disorder. People who have it are not crazy. It is a collective stress response that's based on a belief. And everyone has beliefs, so everyone is potentially susceptible to mass psychogenic illness. To understand Havana syndrome, you need to look at how it all started and go back to the beginning with patient zero in the first report. It all started in a small unit of CIA officers in Havana in late 2016. And for weeks, they had been hearing these mysterious sounds outside of their homes at night. And then one day, one of them wasn't feeling well, and he had a headache and ear pain. And a theory emerged that they were being harassed by some new weapon. This rumor then spread through the small CIA unit that was going on in Havana, and later to U.S. and Canadian embassies, which had a very close relationship and shared information. In Dr. Bartholomew's mind, there can only be one explanation. What happened in Cuba is a clear-cut case of mass psychogenic illness. And then you've got a secondary phenomenon here, which is confusing people. You've got what happened since 2018, the symptoms have spread around the world. But that's not surprising because the State Department issued an alert to diplomats and intelligence officers around the world to report any anomalous health incidents, especially if it was accompanied by strange sounds. Well, there's an old saying, speak of the devil and he is bound to appear. And more recently, the Department of Defense has contacted its 2.9 million service members and contractors around the world and said it was their patriotic duty to report any anomalous health incidents that they may have reported over the past five years. This is a classic setup for mass psychogenic illness. And as for the studies that showed signs of brain damage in the patients... There should be an investigation of the Journal of the American Medical Association and how they could publish studies that were so inconclusive. I mean, one of those studies, 12 of those affected had histories of concussion compared to none in the healthy controls. That alone could account for the differences between the two groups. They're just poor studies. This has been a classic case of bad journalism, bad government, and bad science. And it's important to realize it's the power of a belief. If you've told these victims that they are the subject of brain damage, it is going to make it more difficult and lengthen the time of their recovery, even if it's psychogenic, because they are experiencing real symptoms. And I also think there are U.S. government officials who are deliberately muddying the waters because it's going to be incredibly embarrassing 
when it eventually comes out, and it will, because the wheels of science progress slowly, but they turn, when it comes out that they've spent the last five years and tens of millions of dollars on what turned out to be the mating call of the ND short-tailed cricket that was mistaken for a Russian attack. Dr. Bartholomew doesn't deny that the symptoms do exist, whatever their cause. But you won't be surprised to hear what victims of Havana syndrome make of that hypothesis. Here's Mark Polymeropoulos again. The theory of mass hysteria of many of these victims are, are suffering from a psychogenic illness, I think, you know, has been used to discredit a lot of the victims over the years. Now, that's not to say that every case that is reported is accurate, is true. I'm sure there's going to be false positives. But ultimately, it would not make sense in my case. I was not under any stress. I was on a trip to Moscow where there was not operational. And then I also think about some of the other victims of this, not only U.S. officials, but their children. So when you have a young child, a one-year-old, for example, I'm not quite sure how they would suffer from mass hysteria. As some of these individuals, and especially some of the, the spouses and the children, have suffered from traumatic brain injuries. When people come out with kind of the, the mass hysteria, the psychogenic argument, and I feel a little bit, you know, my, my blood boils a little bit, only in the sense I know that's not what happened to me. But nonetheless, I think that we just have to, you know, let the investigation kind of go forward. I think the trouble with mass psychogenic illness is it suggests that it's a purely psychological event. Alan Carson is a consultant and professor of neuropsychiatry at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. It has this suggestion that people are working themselves up into a frenzy and it inevitably carries with it suggestion that this is an imagined state and that that creates a real tension because I've no doubt the people who have these symptoms are suffering. Professor Carson attributes the symptoms not to a problem with what we might call the brain's hardware but to a problem with its programming. In other words the problems don't come from some physical damage in the brain but from an error in the way it's functioning. I think there is a significant likelihood that a portion of the patients at least have what are referred to as functional neurologic disorders. These are a range of somewhat poorly understood but common conditions that sort of exist on the borderline between what we think of as physical brain diseases and what we think of psychological. But that division doesn't really exist in the brain and it's how the brain processes unusual stimuli and the sort of glitches that can occur are of considerable interest. This area of neuroscience addresses the intersection between the psychological and the physiological in the brain. Everything psychological, this very conversation, has a physiological correlate. You know, this is not happening in the ether over our left shoulder. This is happening because our brain is functioning and updating and altering itself continuously as we speak to each other. And what you see in the functional disorders is there is usually some form of trigger. Now, that might be physical injury, relatively modest, but stubbing your toe on the end of the bed would do. Or it might be psychophysiological. In other words, the physical effects of panic, the things that make our nostrils flare, that make our hair on our arms stand on end. You know, this is sort of part of the nervous system going into overdrive. You know, there's a range of different things, but they create some odd sensation in our body 
which people find difficult to classify. That could explain why acute symptoms were felt by victims, even if there was no direct attack. We commonly see a condition in clinic called persistent postural perceptual dizziness, and this exemplifies the problem. So people will wake up in the middle of the night with sudden onset dizziness from well-recognized inner ear disease, um, things like benign positional vertigo. And it's a terrifying experience. I've had it myself, and despite seeing and treating people for years with the condition, nothing prepared me for personally having it. And I was like, oh, what the hell is this? Despite the fact once I calmed down, I realized instantly it was a harmless thing. But a proportion of people in the aftermath of that go on to develop a more long-term problem with dizziness and a sort of fear of movement such that whenever they start to move they feel a bit overwhelmed and off balance and that would be seen as a functional disorder. These sorts of events can just happen. Classically in the inner ear we have a lot of little fine hairs that dangle into a set of canals that are all set perpendicular to each other so they're like a sort of three-dimensional gyroscope of where we are in space and with the passage of time and age unfortunately in my case you just tend to get little bits of sort of crystals and bone dust developing in these mechanisms. It's a very fine-tuned mechanism and this dust just disturbs the fine hairs and causes them to misperceive what's happening. So that type of event will commonly occur. Or people just getting up in the middle of the night perhaps going for a pee and just feeling dizzy and unbalanced which is a common enough symptom. So there's a range of different acute triggers but what one generally sees is some form of unusual event. A better understanding of functional disorders could shed light on a number of poorly understood conditions. The idea would be that our brain is housed in a body and the only window into how our body functions is the brain's perception. And we think of that as very much a one-way street. So signals come from our body and that's it. But actually it's a two-way dynamic relationship that alters both function and structure over the course of time. And and a disease is a product of that interaction. Even when there's clear pathological change, you know, say something like a heart attack, there's very clear evidence that the degree of destruction to the heart, which you can measure very accurately, but the degree of damage and the limitation of function to the heart only explains a part of the overall outcome. And a lot of other factors explain why one patient can function in terms of walking up a flight of steps or carrying shopping. And that's been shown in umpteen very large, well-conducted studies. According to Professor Carson, the symptoms of Havana syndrome are not unusual at all and could be explained by a common neurological illness. But in the context of rumours swirling of a mysterious weapon being deployed against diplomats, those symptoms might appear very different. I was describing my own episode of vertigo if I'd just been told a week earlier that Chinese forces or whatever were attacking NHS consultants with a microwave I would have analysed that event in a completely different way to just assuming well I'm getting a bit older and I've got benign positional vertigo if, if, if you see what I mean so I think you can see why diplomats experiencing these phenomena might respond to it differently to another member of the public 
The theory that symptoms of Havana syndrome could be caused by functional disorders is gaining traction, but hasn't been widely acknowledged yet. Government officials and the doctors who've treated the patients are convinced that the symptoms were caused by something physical, like that mysterious directed energy source we discussed earlier. I think one of the major issues is that prominent figures and scientists and experts just can't seem to agree. The economists Hannah Nebiu Vioke again. And this is because there's just not enough information available to them. So that's going to be a very difficult hurdle to overcome. One of the panelists in a major report literally stated there is little evidence to come to any conclusion, which is why at this point it just seems as if everyone's grasping at straws. Um, so that's going to be a huge issue, and that's why putting in more resources, you know, creating a task force that is just set on uncovering what Havana syndrome is, is key to this moving forward. Do you think that we're going to get any answers? Well, I think everyone would, would love to have an answer to this because it is just such a mystery. You know, there's that whole political backdrop of the US and Cuba having just formalized diplomatic relations right before these sort of attacks seem to be happening. But I think another issue is that there seems to be a preference for the more exotic theories in political circles. You know, several of President Joe Biden's advisors have said that they believe the CIA will eventually trace Havana syndrome to Russia. So this preference for that theory might be a problem because it interferes with the scientific part of the process, which is unbiased, you know, looking at what's available. So who knows? We may never know what or who is behind this, but let's look at what the Biden administration is doing. Now, despite not having all the answers, what's important to realize is that the diplomats have suffered. What they are feeling is very real, very distressing. And even though we might not have the answers, that is what we need to be focusing on, which is, you know, providing medical care and providing compensation um, if, if there can be any. I did have to retire because of my conditions. That's former CIA officer and Havana syndrome victim, Mark Polymeropoulos again. So this happened December of 2017, and I retired in July of 2019 when I turned 50 years old. Uh, I couldn't go to work for more than three or four hours every day. And, and my colleagues all saw this. I mean, you know, none of this is, would be a surprise to anybody who knows me because I, when I came back from Moscow, you know, my entire life changed. But ultimately, I certainly had another decade left if this had not happened to me. What really happened to Mark and the others affected by this strange syndrome? This scientific mystery has proved and will continue to prove challenging. It's normal for scientists to argue and disagree, but eventually they do tend to reach a consensus as more data and evidence emerges. But there's a distinct lack of data with Havana syndrome, and that might prove frustrating in the end. The evidence suggests that something happened, but we might have to accept that we'll never know what it was. Our thanks to Mark Polymeropoulos, Jim Giordano, James Lynn, Robert Bartholomew, Alan Carson, and the economists Hannah Nebiu-Vioke and Shashank Joshi. 
And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. For plenty more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, where the upcoming weekly edition will explore a new frontier of investment and innovation in big tech. You can get your best introductory offer by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin. Mixing and sound design is by Nico Rofast. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.